uh, leader is Poonam. Hi, I'm Poonam. I'm a compulsive reader. Hi, Poonam. I came to this program 100 pounds more than I weigh today, and that was about 13, 14 years ago. When I came to the program, I wore a size 22, 24. I was bursting out of it. I probably belonged a size bigger, but I was just kind of just sticking with it and digging my heels. I felt pretty hopeless. I had um, triplet daughters that were little, about three years old. I had tried every diet on the planet. I had um, tried all the commercial programs. I'd done Atkins and Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig's and South Beach and I don't even know, banana, cabbage diet, I remember that one. <laughs> I had tried them and no matter what I tried, I always ended up putting on more weight. I'm a compulsive overeater of the highest order. I stole, even as a kid, I stole money so I could go buy snacks. I stole money from my dad's handkerchief where he kept it on the mantelpiece. I stole money from other kids. Um, I ate spoiled food, food out of the garbage, food from the floor. Just if there were sweet things, I was obsessed with them till every grain was gone. And of course, nobody, I would never admit that I was the one who had cleaned off a whole box of whatever. So uh, I, I was just incorrigible when it came to certain food behaviors. I, I was just propelled. I couldn't help myself. And every time I went to see the doctor, the doctor said, you need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. It's easier said but I felt so hopeless. I, you know, it's easy for doctors to say, but of course, each time I went back, I probably gained a little bit more. My doctor, when I was pregnant with my children, um, I had uh, gestational diabetes that was so raging that they had given me all the insulin they could, and they were talking about giving me some kind of experimental insulin. Um, I had high blood pressure. My doctor was constantly trying to put me on Lipitor, because my triglycerides and cholesterol were through the roof, and I was resisting it. So I remember him saying, you know, promise me when you turn 45, you will start. And um, so I was like, yeah, yeah, you know. But of course, I never intended to do any of those things. Um, my doctor had sent me to a nutritionist. I couldn't follow that plan even for a day. So, uh, so about this time, I heard about bariatric surgery, and I thought, you know, Maybe that's the solution for me because I certainly couldn't lose even five pounds. But I thought I would have to, I would have to lose 100 pounds. I would have to be 100 pounds overweight for the insurance to cover it. And in my mind, I was just big boned. So, you know, I had about 85 pounds to lose. So I started thinking, you know, I could easily put on 15 pounds. That's very easy for me to do. And I started researching it, and that's the route I was going to go. But I was terrified of the surgery itself. And uh, about that time, when I felt so hopeless, I was really afraid that now that I had these little girls, I was going to die an early death because of the way my health was. And I was afraid that I wasn't going to see them to become teenagers even. 
about the time when I was feeling so hopeless and thinking about about surgery and whatever, I saw an article in the Chronicle. It was a front page article, and the article was about OA. I've never seen an article since. I didn't know about OA, but the article described OA as the last house on the block for people who were compulsive overeaters. And it described compulsive overeaters. And I knew that was me. And I had tried everything, everything. I was so sick of it that I thought, you know, this is where I need to go. So I looked up OA meetings and I went to my very first meeting. It was a tiny little meeting in a hospital. And I remember for some reason, I was so overwrought with emotion walking into the meeting. It was a small meeting, about 10, 12 people around a table. And once the meeting began and I started hearing these people talk, I felt for the first time in my life that I was powerfully home. These people were talking about what it was like for me on the inside. For the first time, I heard people talk about that. And it was just so liberating for me to be in a group of people who were like me. These were my people. And I had always felt so much shame and isolation. I Nobody understood. My mom had not a day's problem with her eating. Um, so it, it was always a struggle. I decided to do whatever these people were doing. And also, I had read the article that said this is the last house on the block. So other than surgery, well, what else was I going to do? So I decided to give OA my best effort and started going to meetings. At the second meeting, somebody came up to me and said, I would like to be, would you like me to be your temporary sponsor? And I thought, temporary sponsor, that sounds good, you know, I, I can handle that. But a permanent one seemed too scary. So I said, sure. So she became my temporary sponsor. And those days, at least in the East Bay, there was a culture where people talked about their abstinence. In the course of their sharing, people would say, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I abstain from blah, blah, blah. And so I heard a lot of people saying that they were abstaining from sugar and flour. So I knew that sugar was my demon, sugar was my cocaine. I was obsessed with sugar first, since first thing in the morning. Before I knew it, I was eating something sweet, and then the rest of the day, that's what fired me up, rather than grabbing anything else even though I knew I was just a step away from the gestational diabetes that I just suffered so much with, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. And the next day was going to be a different story, but that day was, was done. The moment I took the first bite, I was, I was ridden by the sugar. And so one day I decided to try the no sugar thing. And it was noon and I hadn't had sugar. And that was so amazing to me that I decided to just kind of see, you know, I, I, I just remember marveling that it was noon and I hadn't had sugar. And then it was afternoon and it was evening and I hadn't had sugar. And it was such an incredible event in my life because I knew that that was a very rare day for me. The way I was going, I just could not stop. I could not have even a few hours without sugar. And so then it was nightfall, and I didn't want to jinx it, and somehow I went to bed without sugar. 
And the next day, I knew it was a miracle. I had gone a full day without sugar. And I knew that I wasn't going to see that day again. It was, it was just such a huge thing because I had remembered what it was like pricking my fingers all the time and injecting myself and whatever and, and feeling the effects of the high sugar and the low sugar and whatever. I was terrified of it, but I could not give up this thing. And then a whole day had gone, so the next day I didn't want to, I didn't want to jinx it. So then another day went without sugar and then another day and another day, and I've been sugar-free ever since. Because I just knew that that window that had opened up for me, I didn't know if I had it in me to ever go by even a few hours without sugar. And um, that said and done, I was abstinent from sugar, but at some point um, I thought, you know, uh, what about sugar-free candy and sugar-free whatever? And I, I tried those things and agave and I don't know stevia and a f fruit concentrate. That's not sugar. I tried those things, but to my brain they were all sugar. I instantly reacted to them just the way I would to sugar. The obsession was just as powerful, so I knew I couldn't do them. I couldn't do them or honey, or whatever, it's, it's all sugar to me. And, um, but giving up sugar, but I was still doing a lot of damage with the flours and the fried food and the fats and the butters and whatever, and the Indian ghee, which tastes so good to me. And so I was yo-yoing. I had a, my, that sponsor left after two months and I had another sponsor um, who I asked because somebody said, you have to have a sponsor before you leave the meeting, ask somebody. And so I asked someone who I liked. How much was that? You have 15, or, uh, 15 remaining. Okay. Um, so I asked somebody, but, but um, I was yo-yoing till I came to a meeting in San Francisco. It's a Wednesday night meeting. And I, I heard somebody sharing. The only reason I didn't leave for those seven years or so is because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know where else to go because really this was the last house on the block for me. I tried everything. And um, so I heard somebody share and, uh, and I was sharing about how I felt I was like a giant tanker. I had trouble turning because I could see other people walk into the program and get something and be transformed before my eyes and be different people. But here I was, kept coming back to the meetings, kept, but I wasn't getting the recovery I needed. So I felt like a tanker ship trying to change in the waters. And uh, somebody came up to me after the meeting and she said, you know, what you were describing sounded really painful. It doesn't have to be that way. And I said, what do you mean? She said, yeah. She said, why don't you write what are you afraid of to truly give yourself to the program? I didn't think I was afraid of anything. But because I trusted this person's recovery so much, in my eyes she had the flaming bush of the recovery. Just <laughs> the whole. So every time she spoke, something in me lit up. I listened to her. So because it was her suggesting, I said, okay, so... 
She said, yeah, just for five minutes, write for the next few days. What are you afraid of? So I started writing whatever came to my head. And I realized one of the things that came up is that I was afraid of starving. Thin people had to be starving people in my head. How else could they be thin? Because I was really, I, I would eat proactively. I was afraid of hunger. I was afraid of having to give up my favorite foods. I was afraid of being thin. I'd never been thin. I didn't know what that was like. And just all sorts of things. And some of them seemed silly to me once they were on the paper, but these were my fears. And then another day I heard her say that she had a particular way of doing the daily 10th step. And when she started doing it, food became low-grade static for her. And she started feeling the presence of her higher power palpably around her. So she could reach out and touch it. I wanted that. I was tormented by food. Food called to me all day. I yo-yoed with food. And I wanted her experience. She also said she never negotiated with food. How can that be? And so I asked her what she was doing. She said she wrote out step three prayer, word for word. So she began, you know, God, I offer myself for thee to build with me and to do with me as thou will. I started doing that. Um, and after writing step prayer, word for word, she would write out whatever fears, angers, resentments were. So I started writing out. And uh, I said, please, I have to say the prayer to even remember the words. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. And bondage of self to me is the self-inflicted fears because my anger is nothing but fear clusters. My resentments are fears. And I'm, I had no idea I was such a fearful person. I was totally oblivious till I started writing. And I'm a fearful person. I'm afraid of all sorts of things. And some of them are just anxiety kind of fears and some are bigger fears. And this is the stuff that squeezes me every day. So I started writing this out. <clears throat> and... Um, and then she would end with step seven prayer. My creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, the good and the bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. I started writing that. I started underlining these two prayers. And then she would call up somebody and give it away. So I had to call up somebody and give it away. And it seemed incredibly humbling. It seemed vulnerable-making. It felt like I was unzipping myself, my insides, just putting out stuff that I had never looked at, the fears I had never looked at, just putting it all out. It was all between me and the paper as I was writing it, and then calling somebody to give it away. The level of humility and, and I guess the honesty of it, it, it just unzipped me. Food became low-grade static. It just fell around my heels, so to speak. I, the very first year I did it, um, I lost a lot of weight. I don't remember, you know, 40, 50 pounds, something like that. I wasn't interested in food anymore. But it started changing me. When I wrote things, the fears changed. 
after giving it away, I could do some of the things I said I was afraid of. I couldn't act on these things, but now I could because in, during the course of my writing, I would say, I'm afraid of this, 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 and what should I do about it, God? And the answer would come, you know, do this or this or call so-and-so or give this away or surrender or make amends. I was able to now act on, on these things. And it started changing me on the inside. The other thing she said to me is make sure plenty of good food is available, is cooked and available to you at all times. So that became important. I started making sure that I always had the food that I needed. I drew up a food plan based on dignity of choice and doing the green foods, the list of green foods, yellow foods, and red foods. I started calling up people, abstinence just became a number one thing because I realized that when that was working, everything else was working in my life. And luckily she never said to me, you can't do step 10 unless you do all the other steps because I was on step one or two when I started doing it. And, uh, and this helped me do all the other steps. I realized more step work equals less food. And this time I started doing the step work with as thorough, as searching, and as much honesty as I could. I had been molested as a child over a period of time at a very young age. She suggested I do a sexual inventory first. So as a fourth step, I did a sexual inventory, putting down every little sexual thought that I had and every experience. And the I had carried these, I always thought of them as these towering structures of shame and isolation around me because I felt like a tainted person, a, an unworthy, tainted person from, from my childhood. But once I gave away these inventories, those things kind of collapsed. And, and I, could be, I could be in normal world again. Then I did another inventory about everything else, all the people in my life and institutions and that kind of stuff, gave that away. Um, I had carried a lot of guilt because I thought I owed somebody in my life huge amends. But when I came to that point, my sponsor said, no, you don't owe amends at all. And, and which was almost anticlimactic, but also it set me free because I realized that I can't really trust what it's like in my head. When the drapes are pulled and my demons are up, I think things are a certain way, but they're not like that, really. So, so it really started changing. Uh, one of the things I remember is um, I used to be a very jealous wife when I started the program. And a few years ago, my husband decided to become a male nurse. And it's so liberating. I don't even know how. It, it just lifted. And, you know, I... I'm so freed, so freed. Uh, it took him a while to really feel like, indeed, that was so. Yeah, it is so. I, I'm just so grateful. So this program's working in a lot of ways in my life. Another thing that happened is uh, one day my sponsor said, you used to meditate and got a lot out of it. Why did you give that up? So I realized that at some point, you know, with my 10-step writing and whatever, I wasn't making the time to meditate. So I started meditating again. 
I um, plus I somebody I I had gone to India and somebody taught me a particular method of meditating which really suits me. So he said if you meditate for twenty minutes tw- uh, in the morning and twenty minutes before dinner for two months without fail, you will know what will happen or something will happen. I was curious. So just because he said it like that for two months, I decided to do that as a practice. And the two months were up and I was hooked. And I realized that my meditation practice sustains me so deeply today. I get up in the morning, I sit in bed, I lean against the headboard, I meditate. And now I meditate longer, I meditate for about 40 minutes to an hour. I come home in the evening, I drop my bags, I go straight into the bedroom and meditate. My kids know, or sometimes I warm up dinner for them, and then they'll eat while I go meditate. My family is just used to the routine. I come, before going to sleep, instead of tossing in bed, I sit and meditate for a few minutes till I get really sleepy and go in. And it just sustains me in such a deep way because all my anxieties and my churnings and whatever is happening at work and whatever falls, and I feel restful and supported and refreshed. Sometimes I'm so tired, and I get in a direction. I feel self-love out of it and self-caring. Just, and in best of times, I feel like my life is just the way as it should. And I've noticed that before, after dinner, I would go hang by the refrigerator, open the door, close the door, no, I can't eat, open it again, close it again to see what's inside. I don't need to do that. Because if something is stirring up, if I'm hungry, angry, bored, lonely, tired, the the whole halt list, I just meditate. I can meditate for five minutes, I can meditate for 20. So... It's just amazing that it has turned into something so unexpected for me, but uh, but so nourishing in a deep way. The other thing I realize is that I have to do three meetings a week because the slogan, two to survive and three to thrive, is absolutely true for me. I also realize that for me, not all meetings are equal. I come to the meeting in San Francisco, I come from Novato, and I try to make it a weekly meeting if I can, because that's where I hear most of what I need to hear. I hear deep recovery. There are people at that meeting with 20, 30, 40 years of abstinence, and really clean abstinence. I just hear things there that I don't quite get at my home meetings in Marin. So I have to be willing to go to any lengths to to get that. Um, and that is true for food too. I realize we have a food holiday coming up. I always have to make sure that I have what I need. I go to potlucks. I go to a potluck once a month at my temple. I always bring the salad and I always bring a dish of green vegetables. Because I know there's going to be plenty of carbs there and sugar, and everything else. And their idea of vegetables is potato dish, you know, curried potatoes or, or, or peas and potatoes or something. That doesn't work for me. So no matter where I go, I bring what I need to bring. For the Thanksgiving to my husband's family, 
I'm going to bring what I need to bring because everything else will be taken care of. So I always have to plan ahead and think ahead, and that's what sustains me. I have to be willing. I go to conventions um, to L.A., usually for business, and I bring my food with me, and I ask for a refrigerator in the room. If I'm going to do something different about my food, I text my sponsor uh, and tell her, you know, this is what I'm planning. I plan ahead. If I don't know what food is being served and it's not a situation I can call ahead of time, then I bring my lunch or my dinner or whatever with me and I bring it, leave it in the car. I go check out the scene if I'm not being provided for. I come and eat in the car or bring it in. So because nobody else cares what I'm eating anyway, and I learned that. And um, I read this article, actually. I heard about this article on NPR um, Time Magazine did some article about big losers, people who have lost 100 pounds or more, and they said that people who lose 100 pounds or more put that weight back on in five years. I know I'm a big loser. I know I'm a compulsive overeater of the highest kind. I'm not cured. I'm not changed. I am... I, that's just who I am. And so for me to be able to stay where I am, I have to practice these things, these tools that I've been shown that work for me one day at a time, every single day. So that's what helps me, and I'm so grateful to this program. Just incredibly grateful because I never really expected to be sitting in this chair and, um, and living the life that I am today. Thank you very much. Thank you.